I saw you already. You were up there. You don't count. So today is the last of our First Peter, the last week that we're going to be looking at First Peter. But he said, oh, it's sad. I know. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, but don't worry too much because we're going to be continuing our series, Standing Out in a Foreign World, uh, into Second Peter. I know. Exciting. More Peter. All right. I don't know. He's probably laughing in heaven. He's like, what a bunch of weirdos. But it is, it is a, it's a totally different book. It has the same writer, uh, but he, he has a totally different kind of shift in the way that he's going to be focusing his attention. But I think there's still some key elements of standing out in a foreign world, but he's going to look more from within the church and give us some warnings about false teachers and, and warnings about ways that we can maybe veer away from the truth. And I think those are also really important in getting a foundation for standing firm in our faith in this foreign world that we live in as Christians. So we'll be looking at that. I don't want to give away too much, you know, but you guys be excited about next week. So that will be next week. We'll start with uh, the first of Second Peter. Today we're ending First Peter. And as if you were listening, the text today, some powerful things in this text, some powerful points that I want us to unpack. We won't even be able to get to everything that's in this short text, relatively short text, uh, but I think there's some really key things we're going to look at. But before we get to that, I actually want to kind of cap uh, the book a little bit in looking at kind of how he ends in verse 12. He says, I have written you briefly, encouraging you and, and, test, and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Now that's interesting because when we think about all the things that Peter has laid out to us, in this letter, and it's been a lot. This is week 17, for those of you who are like just joining us. We've, this is week 17 of a five-chapter book. We've really taken some time to get into this book because there's a lot in it. And we've looked at all these different things. He's addressed the core of our salvation. We even spent two weeks on the first couple verses, verse 1 and 2, where our faith, we see what our faith is grounded in, how it's grounded in the call of God, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and the purification of the blood of Christ, and we see our identity and our status as children of God, as a holy priesthood, a holy nation called, chosen by Him. He's gone in depth in suffering. It's one of the main topics of this book, the suffering that we will face when we follow Christ, and how Jesus guides us and gives us an example, sets before us an example of how to deal with suffering in a righteous and godly way. We're giving, we're given, he shows us how we're given what we need through the Holy Spirit, through the anointing, through the power that God places within us when we face those things. We always will have what we need in those situations. We're titled in this book, Exiles and Foreigners. That's where we get our title of this series, if you didn't know. We're exiles, we're foreigners, and as such, Peter is directing us in practical ways to live our lives day to day. We've seen all of these different things that he's pointed out and how we are to interact in the relationships that we find ourselves in, the interactions, the encounters we have. He looks at authority and government and our boss at work and how we can interact in there and how we should respond to people who mistreat us, how to interact with our friends and even our spouse. 
and much, much more vital subjects that he's explored. And yet, here at this end of the book, at the end of the letter, the way he sums it up, in this short and precise phrase, he says, this is the true grace of God. That's the core of everything in this book. This is the true grace of God. The true goodness of God, followed with a final command to stand fast in it. So as we close this book today, I'm a bit torn. It's hard to close a book like this so quickly. Only 17 weeks. I mean, she's barely got into it. There's certainly so much more in this letter or offered in this letter for us today. Practical things that we just didn't have time to get into, time to explore And with that in mind, I really want to encourage you guys, especially those who've been here from the start. And there are a few of you, not all of you, but a few of you who've been here all the way through. And I want to encourage you not to say, okay, I've heard heard about 1 Peter, moving on, don't need to go back to that book. But I really want to encourage you to keep coming back and revisiting this letter and continue to seek and to unlock what all that it has to offer you. This letter is full of the true grace of God. And knowing that, knowing that grace of God leads to the ability to stand fast in it. So I want to encourage you guys with that. On the other side, I'm really glad that we could take this journey together to go through this letter. And my belief and my hope is that in all of this, you've been affected. If you heard just one sermon, if this is the only sermon you've heard, or if you've heard every single one of the last 16 that you would be affected by it in a way that only true grace, only the true grace of God can really have a lasting and powerful effect on us. Let's not end this letter feeling that we should feel a little bit better about ourselves. Maybe we've learned something, we've educated ourselves a little bit more, but let us end it to seek the full effect of God's grace, that it would take hold in us and take root within us so that we can, as Peter encourages us to do, stand fast in the true grace of God, to stand firm in the faith that we've been given. Now, why is this so important? Why do we need to stand firm in our faith? Why do we have to have this rooted in us? Verse 8 tells us, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. That's a powerful image. Something that we often forget, or sometimes we want to forget, or we're not sure what we believe about it. But the Bible is very clear. We have an enemy. An adversary is actually the, a more accurate translation, which is connected with even uh, legal terminology. He's our adversary. He seeks to see us destroyed. He sets his purpose against us. The devil is not a made-up story to keep children in line, as there are a lot of those in Germany and some really creepy ones. The devil is not one of them. He's not made up. And he's looking to devour. We must be standing on the solid ground of God's grace if we're to have any hope. Now, what I find really interesting in this particular text when talking about the devil, that's fairly unique imagery, is why a lion? Why a lion? 
Why would Peter use this particular image? I don't think we normally would think of a lion when we think of the devil. It's not the typical image used throughout the Bible. In fact, Jesus is often depicted as the lion, right? The lion of Judah. I'm thinking like, what about Aslan? I mean, this is like messing with my head. It's, a, it's an interesting image. Why a lion? I mean, what animal would you think of if I said to think of an animal for the devil? Dragon, that's pretty, wow. You're, that's intense. I didn't go that far. I would normally think of a snake. That's how, he's, how he appears in, in Genesis, and we typically tend to associate him with deceit. Why a lion? Now, what I want to take a moment for is to say that both a snake and a roaring lion are fitting imagery for the devil. And here's why. The devil is trying desperately to destabilize and destroy our relationship to God. He's trying to destroy it. That's his goal. That's his mission, to destabilize and destroy our relationship to God. And there are many ways that he attempts to do this, but I see that there are two main means, if you will, that he uses to try and penetrate our faith and our relationship and our trust in God. And this can be broken down, I think, into these two images of the snake and a roaring lion. So first, I want to look briefly at this idea of a snake. This is a little bit more common, and I want to just so we can make a comparison, but I won't spend too much time on it because that's not what our text is about and it's not what our focus is going to be on. But first, he comes as a snake, and in this, as a snake, he seeks to deceive us, to lie to us, to whisper false truths into our ear, to sneak into our thoughts and manipulate us. Primarily, I believe, as, and as I would see, primarily in deception, he uses our pride against us. It's a powerful tool that he wields against us, saying things like, you deserve this. It's okay to do that. It's okay to, to walk that way. It's okay to go with those people. It's okay to push your boundary a little bit further. You deserve it. God just doesn't want you to be happy. Or you're not really that bad. You're not as bad as those people. I'm not pointing at you, Giannis. You're nothing compared to what they've done. He whispers these lies to slowly inch his way in and deceive us and manipulate us. The devil will sneak his way in even by twisting what's good and what's from God into something evil. We can see the example of that when he used the word of God itself, the Bible, to try and tempt Jesus to sin when Jesus was in the desert. As a snake, I believe the devil will do all that he can to keep you from the truth. He will manipulate and twist the truth of God as much as he can so that it, your expectations are lowered. Your, the appeal of God is lowered and diminish. He wants to diminish the truth of the freedom found in Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He'll call God unfair, a tyrant, 
so that you are blind to the love that he has for you. He comes as a snake to deceive, and we must be on our guard against that when it comes to him coming as a snake to deceive us. This is why the truth and knowing the truth is so important, and also why it's so important to speak the truth, right? This is why we need to share the gospel with others, the truth of the gospel, that they would not be led away from it, away from the truth of the gospel, even before they've ever properly heard it or understood it, and what Jesus really has done for their salvation. So we need to be weary of this, and this is a typical image, but I want to go back to our text with the second image a lion. Why? Why a lion? What is a lion? A lion, a roaring lion, not very sneaky. It's not like, it didn't say a prowling lion, a stalking lion. It said a roaring lion. I'm pretty sure that no roaring lion is going to sneak up behind us. We'll hear it coming. So why a lion? How does this fit in with the devil? For that, I want you guys to close your eyes. Except for Giannis, who's already falling asleep. <laughs> really, okay, everybody close your eyes. And I want you to imagine with me that there's a lion pacing back and forth through these aisles of this room. He's fierce, mighty, powerful, with dark, piercing eyes. There's blood dripping from his powerful teeth, remnants from his last victim but his hunger is insatiable and he's seeking one to devour and suddenly he roars mightily. Now open your eyes. In that moment, if you have an imagination like me, I was even a little bit, I was like, oof, that's scary. It's too good. Imagination's too good. But if you really can picture that, what do you feel in that moment? What do you feel? Fear. Unless you're crazy, you feel fear. Unless you're like, I can take him. No. You feel fear. When you're face to face with a roaring lion that you know is seeking to devour you, you feel fear. And if you're alone, you're not going to beat that lion in hand to hand. Sure, Samson took a lion out, but he had the Spirit of God on him. A situation like that, face to face with a terrifying fear, can cripple us. You feel paralyzed. You feel helpless. What can you really do? You can try to run. That's not going to get you very far. The devil loves to use fear in his seeking to devour our faith. He loves to use fear when he's seeking to devour our faith, and he does it by using our suffering against us. Now, we've covered a lot on suffering throughout this text, throughout this book, but I want to remind you guys, what we looked at actually just a couple weeks ago, that suffering, suffering here in this text, in the context of this book, is mostly focused on persecution, but it's not limited to persecution. All suffering that we face qualifies. And this is the point, as I mentioned. Most of the time, suffering isn't so surprising when we're in it. 
We're foreigners here and we just go home to be with our Father in eternal glory forever. But even though he cannot truly and completely defeat us, we can't take that as an excuse to relax and act like there's not something real at stake. Verse 8 also tells us at the beginning to be alert and of sober mind. A better word would be watchful from the Greek. Not just alert, not just aware, but actively seeking to look around, to be watchful. And this, I believe, is a sign of our true conversion. We are to seek our true conversion, to seek our assurance, to know I do belong. I am one of Christ's sheep. I do belong to him. And this is one of the signs of a true conversion, of a genuine faith. It's our watchfulness against the enemy. No, I'm not going to sit back and do what I want knowing that, well, I'm saved. I got a ticket to heaven. Whatever happens, happens. But I will fight. I will stand firm. We will face attack. And we're called to fight the good fight of faith to the very end. He cannot truly defeat us, but he can dampen our faith so as to make us ineffective for God's work here and now. When we succumb to his tactic of fear, we can be crippled in our ministry, in the thing that God's calling us or anointing us and empowering us to do. One way that we can battle this is to be consistently watchful. Remember that God, too, is in your suffering. He's there as well. He is sovereign over all things, including our suffering. This means that we should be aware, we should be alert to the fact that though the devil is seeking to devour your faith, to cripple you and your ministry through the afflictions that you face, He's saying, look at the situation you're in. Look what God's done to you. Give in. Be afraid. You are small and nothing. But at the same time, in that very moment, in the same situation, God is working it for something good. God is working it for something good. The devil comes in with a means to destroy And I can say, no, I'm watchful, I'm alert, I'm aware of what's really going on here. You mean it for evil, you mean to destroy me, but God will turn this into something good. God will take all your your situations, all your struggles, and use them to mold you and to form you into the eternal soul you're called to be. This perspective is how we keep from folding under fear when staring right into the eyes of a roaring, vicious, bloodthirsty lion, knowing God is in control. A great example is Job. We could go on and on into all of the things that we could look at in Job's life regarding this. But if you don't know the story of Job, the devil brought everything against him. He had everything taken from him. His family and friends, his possessions, his health, He literally was left with nothing. His friends tell him at this point, just curse God and die already. Those are really good friends to have around in those times. 
No, don't be a friend like that. Just curse God and die. What does Job say? Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Why may may the name of the Lord be praised. May the name of the Lord be praised. The devil wants you to be overwhelmed, to feel crushed, and to blame God. He wants to see your faith fade to become something tiny and insignificant and your trust in God to dim. But what does verse 9 tell us of our text today? Resist him. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Never let fear in any situation drive you to forget the God that you serve. 2 Timothy 1.7 God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In God, we trust. In God, we put our hope. In God, we stand. And in Him, we've been given love and promises and hope that He would never leave us. He'll never forsake us. We are His children and He cares for us. And the Spirit of God dwells within us. The Spirit that He gave us is not one of fear. The devil wants you to believe it is. You should be afraid. But I can say, no, I don't have to be afraid because the Spirit of God lives within me and it is not one of fear. It is one of power, of love, and of self-control. Stand firm in that. Trust in Him. Even when it doesn't make sense, as Job is a good example of. It didn't make sense to him. He didn't understand what was going on, but he said, I don't, I don't get it, but God's in control and I trust him. Blessed be his name. Praise be to the name of God. We have a God with greater power. Verse 11 tells us that to him, to God, be the power forever and ever. Amen. And we can tie this in with what we looked at a few weeks ago in 1 Peter 3.22. Jesus Christ, it's referring to Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. When we have relationship to Jesus, we know no matter what we are facing, what it is that we're facing, Jesus is with us and he holds dominion over our enemy. And remember who who is it that we're really battling when we're facing oppression from people, from situations that have people involved, which is pretty common? <laughs> what are we really battling against? Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's not flesh and blood but a spiritual enemy that we face ultimately. And when we look at what we just read in 1 Peter 3, our Lord Jesus Christ sits in authority over them. They are held in submission to him. And he is with me. He is for me. And he is for you. James 4, 7 then tells us what we do with this. Submit yourself. Submit yourself 
then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourself to God. That's the key. As Job did. I will, all this, and later on in a, a few verses later, it talks about more things that, he, that he's endured. And he says that in all of this, he did not sin with his lips. He did not say a wrong word against God. He knew who was in, in control and he knew who he was going to submit to no matter what he was facing. So daily, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. We're not taking on any lions alone. And there is someone that even the lion fears, Jesus Christ. And he is on our side. We belong to him. He will shield us and protect us no matter what we face. Drawing near to Christ, of course, does not mean you won't be attacked. It doesn't mean that only good days lie ahead. You will face adversity, struggles, suffering. The Bible is clear. We're to follow Christ, even unto death. But it does mean that when we're close to Jesus, seeking him, treasuring him, making him our, our ultimate treasure and goal in our lives and in our hearts, the devil's not going to stick around long. We might face a hard situation, but he's going to flee. And we will not be left facing that lion. We'll be left in the comforting arms of Christ no matter what we're facing. It is in Christ alone that we even have the authority or the power or the ability to resist the devil at all. So in the end, it's not from us the devil is fleeing. It's from Jesus Christ within us. That's where the power lies. And in all of this, we need to remember, you're not the only one. Verse 9 also tells us, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Look around you. Look to your left, to your right. Look at the people. Yeah, there's a lot of you in here. Guess what? They struggle too. Crazy. I know, it just blew all your minds. That seems obvious. Yeah, I know, everybody, everybody struggles. But how easily we forget this when we're actually in suffering. When we're actually facing a fear, we almost always default to feeling alone and isolated. Nobody could ever know what I'm going through. You could never understand what I'm facing. And it's true, yours will be different than mine. Your situation will be different than the one that I'm experiencing and we'll experience it in different ways. But I want you to keep in mind, it's the devil's hope to separate us, to make us feel isolated, to make us feel alone in those situations. So though each of us carry our own cross, we all have our own situations we'll face, our own difficulties, and it will be different to each and every one of us. Your struggle is not quite as unique as you might think. And we can find hope in this, that we're not alone. We're united in Christ in the various struggles that we face. This is important because it's a great part of the arsenal that we have. 
We know that Jesus is enough, right? Don't get me wrong. Jesus is enough. He always will be. But don't use that as a cop-out. Well, you know, I've got Jesus, and I don't want to bother anybody with my problems. Or it's not really anyone else's business. Or I'm too ashamed, I'm too embarrassed, I don't want anyone to see the things that I'm really struggling with, the things that I find fear in, the things that I feel weak in. Man, don't believe that lie. We're called to stand together against our enemy, and together we're stronger because of it. The reality of our fears will always diminish when brought into the light of revealing it to someone else revealing it to a friend, to a brother, to a sister. I encourage you, don't be afraid to come out and talk about things that bring fear into your life. It's not silly to be afraid. It's not silly, silly to deal with fear. It's something the devil loves to use, and he will always have more of a foothold over you when you stand alone, even with Christ, but when you stand alone. So, be united with those around you. Find people to confide in. And the true drastic nature of the fear will diminish quickly when brought into light. And lastly, I want to look at how we all stand fast on the same promise. which unites us together and also unites us to Christ. Verse 10. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. This is our assurance. This is the truth on which we stand firm in. What this means is that if God has called you to his glory through Christ, then you can be absolutely sure he's not going to lose you. He's going to get you through all the suffering of this life and into his eternal glory. You belong to him forever. A little suffering in between is not going to stop him. He will see you restored. All the things you feel you've lost, all the struggles that have brought you down, weighed on you, you will be restored completely, fully, and more abundantly than you can imagine. He will make you strong. In the facing of a lion, we feel weak. But in our restoration, when we are made complete, we will be made strong in Him. We will be firm and steadfast. How wavering we can be. One moment we feel so confident in what we believe, so sure, and then something happens and we feel fear and doubt and uncertainty. We're so wavering often in our belief. But God is, by His grace, working in us to bring us more and more firm in our faith, unmovable, steadfast, so that we are not easily shaken. We have been called by the God of all grace into his eternal promise for us. The God of all grace, what is that? What is God's grace? 
It's a big question that I'm not going to have time to answer. But to give a short definition of God's grace. God's grace is the undeserved, unearned goodness shown toward humanity. And he is the God of all grace. That means that when we talk about grace, there's different aspects of grace. And he is the God of all grace. Everything we experience that's good in this world, beauty, pleasure, enjoyment, life itself, every breath we take, this is from God's grace, his goodness shown toward humanity. But nowhere is this seen more or experienced more prevalently than in our salvation. And if you wonder, well, do I qualify for God's grace? Do I qualify for this? What do I need to do to get this? What do I have to, how do I get there? Am I good enough to earn God's grace? He is the God of all grace, and he calls us by grace, meaning grace always precedes qualification. And that's the greatest encouragement, the greatest assurance we can ever have. Grace precedes qualification. We're called as sinners, unworthy, having done nothing to earn God's love, God's grace, God's goodness towards us. And yet in this state, we've been called and chosen by God, the God of grace. It is by him we are made and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So don't give in to the devil's lies about you, about who you are, about what you've done or haven't done. It is grace and the goodness of God and the work of Jesus Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection that has saved us. And we can stand firm in this truth. In conclusion, I want to read a passage from the very beginning of this book because I think it's cool how we've kind of come full circle in focusing on this key aspect of the text, that he is the God of all grace. This is the grace of God, the doctrine of grace within this text. So I want to read verse chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And the next verse says rejoice. What a thing to rejoice in. What a thing to hold fast to, to stand firm in. This faith is the acceptance of this as truth. I have been called by grace, doing nothing to have earned it, doing nothing to to have deserved it, and yet I am called a child of God. This is our faith. And we activate our faith by standing firm in this in the midst of all situations, all fears, all doubts we face, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, knowing God as our Lord, as our Savior, and that he is worthy to be praised in all situations. What we have received through Jesus Christ and the grace of God will never fade, never be taken away. 
It is shielded, protected, guarded by the very power of God. And so in this together, we can, stay, we can say in unison that we will not be shaken. We will not be deceived. We will stand firm in the faith we've received through Jesus Christ as our Lord to the very end. We will fight the good fight. Amen. I want to invite the band to come back up as we prepare to do our final song together. Really quickly, we want to also take some time for the offering. So I'll invite the ushers to come up. They're going to pass around some hats. It's nothing mandatory or anything that you need to feel uncomfortable about or that you have to.